Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Maybe that's unfair because I'm not a celebrity or anything. You know probably more about my life than you need to, but one of the things you've probably picked up on is that I'm very fond of my younger brother, Steve. Steve is one of the dearest people in, in the world to me. Uh, next to my wife, I don't know that there's a human being on this planet I feel closer to. And uh, he's really special to me because he's not just my brother by virtue of shared DNA, shared blood, but he's my brother because of the life that he lives with me. It was really hard for me when he and his family moved out to Africa because he was such a big part of my life. We're grown men, and we would email five times a day. We would call each other all the time. He was such a part of the strength of my life. And I love my brother because even though we share some really great times together, we love Mac computers and Canon cameras and pretty much everything I'm strongly biased about, he infected me. It's not my own idea. He completely influenced me in all those things. But I also love him because he's never been afraid to say the hard stuff to me. I don't think there's anybody who has challenged me more in my life than my younger brother. And being Korean, that's an odd thing to say, but I'm not ashamed of it at all. I think I've learned more from my younger brother than I have from just about anybody else on this planet. And there are times when he has said stuff to me that nobody else would say. He's asked me the tough questions. He's leveled the harsh criticism at me. He has given it to me straight. I can't always tell you I appreciated it at the time or that I didn't want to pound him and show him the birth certificates and remind him that I actually showed up first on this planet. And sometimes it's irritating. But every time I look back, I thank God for my brother because I'm a very different person today because he's in my life. I can't even imagine what I'd be like today if God hadn't given me Steve as my brother. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's like an active, real relationship. We're not just brothers because we have the same mama. But we're brothers by choice. And I like to think that he might give a sermon somewhere in Kenya and say, there's a guy in America named Dave who's kind of special to me too. He'd better be saying it anyway. <clears throat> you know, sometimes I will share a conversation with somebody and something will be going on in their lives, and I can see how clearly they've lost their way. They're just, they can't see it. And I, I totally feel compassion for them because, you know, sometimes the, the hardest thing to do is see your own way clearly. That's why I need my brother. I'm so stupid when it comes to my own life. Sometimes I just don't get it. And I sometimes see people who are wandering about in a fog in their life, and they're so lost in such obvious ways, and I just want to say I can't believe that they've got no one in their life who cares enough about them to have said something to them earlier. I wish for everyone that they had a brother or sister who so deeply cared about them that with courage and boldness they would say the things that absolutely need to be said because we love each other. Because if no one says it, we might just walk right off a cliff and not know it. This morning, I want to give an important reminder about what it means to reach across to our fellow Christians in the church. 
we've been learning that part of reaching across is when others have failed you or are, are, are less than perfect, you make room in your heart for imperfect people. And we learned last week that when you're the one who's imperfect and you've screwed up, before you go and make good with God, you've got to go and make it right with your brother or sister. You've got to learn to admit that you're wrong and to say you're sorry and seek forgiveness. And those are good things. We need to manage and resolve conflicts very well in the church because if we don't, the whole thing will fall apart. But another aspect of our reaching across to one another is that we're supposed to spur each other on toward love and good deeds. And we're not supposed to give up meeting together. Can anyone guess what passage I'm getting that teaching from? It's a very familiar one. If you've ever been in part of a discipleship group that memorized verses, it's pretty likely that that's in the top five or ten verses you'd have to memorize as Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let me read it for you out of the NIV. Excuse me. And the guys have flashed it up on the screen there. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I think that the command here is simple, and it's found mainly in verse 24. If you flash that up again, it's a very simple command that he's given us. Let us consider how we can spur each other on towards something called love and good deeds. And the justification for meeting together is in order to allow us to do this in each other's lives. Don't see it as two commands, so much as one command and a logical consequence of that. Do you get that? And so I want to unpack this simple command a little bit so we understand exactly what the writer of Hebrews had in mind in giving us these words. Now the first thing you you see there, I've chosen the NIV because it picked the word spur. Let us spur one another on. I was a big-time cowboy fan. In fact, I told my mom when I was in first grade, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a cowboy, little knowing I'd more likely be the cook. But, you know, the thing is, I wanted to be a cowboy so badly because I thought it was the coolest thing. First book I ever read when I moved to the United States was a book called Cowboy Andy. I can still remember the first time I got my six-shooters. You know, and remember in the old days when they actually looked like real guns and didn't have that ridiculous orange plastic cap on the end and you twirl it all day like this? I just wanted to be a cowboy. So when I think of Spurs, I think not of a basketball team, but of that little thing, that wicked-looking thing that a cowboy wears on the heel of his boot. I thought, what an interesting word, because if you read some of the other translations... That same word in the NLT is translated encourage. Let us encourage one another. In the NASB, it's let's stimulate one another. And in the King James, it's let's provoke one another. So far, I'd say the King James is closest to the real meaning. This, this idea of spurring, it's interesting. The Greek word that stands behind it is the word paroxysmos. Does that sound familiar to you? If you know a little bit of SAT vocabulary, there's a word called paroxysm, right? Let's say, hey, don't have a paroxysm. That's like a, a sudden outburst or a fit. It's, it's like a sudden outburst of activity or noise or sickness or illness. A paroxysm is like, like all of a sudden I was attacked by something or a paroxysm of laughter. You know the kind of laughter when you almost wet yourself and you can't breathe <clears throat> and it starts to hurt and you can't stop it? 
You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever laugh like that? Where you're like, oh, 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 and you're hurt. That's a paroxysm. In other words, what it's all, what it's talking about, the word spur is really a good, a good word. The thing is, paroxysmos in the Greek is a word that is never used positively. It's always referring negatively to some kind of illness or an annoying person, a, a fly buzzing near. It's never used to refer to something good. But for some reason, the writer of Hebrews in this particular place chooses that word to suggest how the, the effect that we're supposed to have on one another to produce the response of love and good deeds. And I think that's fascinating. What do you think is meant by that? I want to show you a picture. If the guys in the back could... Uh, could uh, flash up that, that picture. That's a spur. <clears throat> now, usually you're seeing a sort of rounded five-spoke spur or something like that. This is a spur like the original spurs look like. It's a wicked-looking little device, isn't it? And I want you to consider the effect it would have on a horse or even more on you if someone strapped that sucker to their shoe and gave you a good swift... <clears throat> Tell me something. You think you'd be taking that as a suggestion or would you be able to ignore that stimulation? That provocation? The word encourage doesn't give it enough force, does it? This is not about saying, say, listen, Matt, you should preach the gospel to people. Really, you should try. That's the way we think of encourage. It's this benign sort of lame, strong suggestion. Listen, you, you know, you should really think about it, all right? What do you say? Come on, tiger. That's the way we think of encourage. You can do it! But the biblical picture here is not about strong suggestion or billowing the sails. It's about saying, listen, there is no other standard. We have no choice here. God has spoken plainly and He did not stutter. We are His children and this is the way that we are called to live. I don't see how else we can conduct ourselves. You are my brother and I will not accept a lesser thing from you. You know, so often we reduce everything to suggestion when what God's word suggests to us is we're supposed to be telling it like it is to one another. Somebody has to say it sometime. And if your brother can't say it, if your sister can't, who on earth can? Can I suggest to some of you that you have been very clever in the way that you have Teflon-coded your relationships. You have subtly or not so subtly trained everyone around you that they may not challenge you. Some people do it by just being smarter than everyone else. You so... You so adeptly use your vocabulary, your quick wit, so that people feel like every time they say something to you, you've got this incredible Shakespearean response. And they just go, I feel like a donkey. I'm never saying anything to you again. You're ten times smarter than I am. I'm just going to shut up. And so you've trained people by your eloquence not to ever try to challenge you. Some of you, you do it by punishing. Anytime someone says anything, you counterattack. Oh yeah, well what about you? You think you're perfect? And right away, you are bulletproof because nobody then has the right to say anything to you. I guarantee you, everyone who will ever challenge you is themselves also a ridiculously blatant sinner. And so that's an easy one to pull out. Ooh, who are you to say anything? How about the time you blink and XYZ and ABC? It's so easy to do, but the person who ends up losing is you because the net effect of that is 
You live your life completely unanswerable to anyone. And in effect, you've made yourself alone in the world. And the curious thing is I find people like that sometimes complain and say, how come no one ever says anything to me? When life falls apart, they say, how come no one warned me? And what I want to say to to some people is, listen, you don't let anyone warn you. You're the smartest one, the most righteous one, the angriest one, the slickest one in the room. It's impossible to say things to you. And so how are we supposed to find an opening in your life to say it? And if that's you, I want you to really let the Word of God sink in. God has called us to spur one another on. It's not something you're supposed to protect yourself from. It's something you're supposed to welcome because it's God's means of protecting you and perfecting you. And that's very important. Now, you should understand this, though. You can take that picture off for now. There are specific regulations in equestrianism today for how you're supposed to use a spur. In other words, if you ride horses, you're not supposed to buy spurs like that, and every time you want your horse to do something, you say, you say, whoa, bam! Right? You don't do that. You only use the spur as a supplement to the usual means of getting the horse to obey. Most people, all they have to do is this. That's like a universal, I don't care what country you grew up in, you right away, you know, a horse is going to start walking somewhere around you, right? And, and so most of the time, you're using verbal commands, you're using the shifting of weight, the squeezing of your thighs, a subtle kick from your heel. You use the reins. There are other means by which we get a horse to move, but horses, just like people, for some reason, sometimes get in a funk where they just don't want to listen. They're distracted, they're upset, they're tired, and they just don't want to move. And a horse is a pretty formidable opponent. If it doesn't want to move, it's just going to pretty much go, whatever, I'm going to sit right here. In that instance, you must deliver to the horse a a, a reminder that cannot be ignored. Oh no, we're going to go. You're going to walk, and I know you're not responding to the usual means, so let me give you something that you're not going to just blow off. And you give it a little kick with that spur, it digs into the soft spot on the side of a horse's belly, and all of a sudden it goes, oh dang, how? And it goes, oh yeah, that's important, I should get walking now. And that's what we sometimes need to do to each other. I guess the bottom line of what I'm saying is that you're not supposed to be spurring each other as a norm. It's not the default setting, but it's something we must not be negligent in doing because every once in a while, every single last one of us needs a good spur in the belly to keep us moving. I know I do. And you know, uh, there have been times when the elders of this church have challenged me on something. Sometimes I preach in a way that is insensitive. I, I'm a little crass at times. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, you know, that word you use, it's probably good if you don't say things that way anymore because it could come off the wrong way. And I, if I didn't have somebody to say that, I might be using profanity in a couple of years. I don't know. I, I, I'm a little like that. I get a little intense. I'm so thankful for people in my life who when I need it and I'm so blind to my own flaws and they are many they will say something to me and when I'm not willing to listen they have the authority to kick me with a spur on their boot do you realize how much we all need that in life? how much we all need it I don't know why we don't listen or why we don't do what's good for us but sometimes we just get in a funk and it takes something unignorable to get us moving again. 
Now, there's something in this original Greek text that doesn't come over into the English very well. Lots of translations have attempted it, and they don't do it successfully because when you do it literally, the English comes off goofy. The best way to translate verse 24 would be something like this. Let us consider one another deeply for the spurring on towards love and good deeds. That's an awkward English sentence. But there's this phrase, let us consider one another. The words consider and one another are separated in English, but they belong together. Here's what it's saying. Before you can take your spur and kick it into your brother, you have a preceding responsibility first. Before you're the one whose voice can speak into someone's life, you've got to deeply consider your brother or sister's life. It's the same word that appears in Hebrews 3.1 when the writer tells us to consider Jesus, to deeply study Him, His nature and His essence and His character. Find out everything you can possibly know about Him. Consider is not, it's not the weak word it is in English today, right? Isn't the word consider something like an optional thought? Like, hey, have you ever considered eating at Applebee's? Have you considered it? Consider to us is a passing thought. Oh yeah, I considered it. Why don't you take it into consideration? The word consider in in Greek is much stronger. It says, no, stare at it. Obsess over it. Really learn its essence so that when you open your mouth, the spur is aimed at the softest part of the belly. You know, this is where I think a lot of us fall apart in this particular ministry of spurring each other on. We haven't taken the time to really understand the person who is going astray. We haven't taken the time to deeply consider even the people closest to us. I know this because very often when I'm doing counseling and I'm talking to somebody about an issue in their life, the starting point is almost always the way it's affected them. I rarely hear someone say, well, I know what they're going through. My wife's been going through a hard time. She's in this this situation, so I understand why she's going through that. But this is how it's affecting me. It's usually, I can't believe they said that. I'm so sick and tired of this. How can they do that to me when I've had a day like this? The Bible tells us that before we can correct someone else, we have to do the hard work of deeply considering them. I want to ask you something. How well do you really understand the people closest to you? Why is it that often I as pastor have to have the deepest conversations with your husband or your wife or your friend? Why don't they feel like they can say those things to you? And this is not a criticism, it's an an actual question. Could it be that even though we say they're close to us, we we don't know how to listen very well? We haven't taken a genuine interest in who that person actually is. We only see what they do and how it affects us. And it is an incredibly important thing to consider the other person first, so that even when you discipline, and this is immensely important with children, Sometimes parents get so irritated. You know the day I'm having how hard it is for mommy and daddy to raise you kids and, and blah, you just, you just kind of have disciplined diarrhea on them. Blah, I'm just going to punish you. Here's, here comes hurricane mommy and daddy. And you don't think about why that kid is being so annoying. What psychological maldevelopment is going on there? What relational immaturity is happening? Do I remember they're five years old? What is going on so that I can first consider them so that when I spur them on, it is done out of a genuine place of knowing them? Because here's what happens. If you don't take the time to know that person, their weaknesses, their history, their past experiences, 
all of their strengths and weaknesses and everything that makes them who they are, you will take that action, that offending action out of context and you will punish them for being less than perfect in a context where you don't even understand them. They don't feel safe around you. They don't feel like you really care. They feel like you're just ranting because you're self-righteous. And I guarantee you, every time you spur like that, that advice, no matter how true and well-meaning, will be rejected and ignored. It will not be translated into a changed life. Parents, don't you know when you yell at your children out of anger and self-righteousness and frustration, that, that discipline never sticks, does it? You don't say, I've yelled at you a hundred times, how come you don't change Parents, look in the mirror. Why do you think you've yelled at them a hundred times and they don't change? Could it be that you're disciplining the wrong way? That before you've even considered your child, you've opened your mouth. You've got a spur, but you don't know. So you're like, you're just aiming haphazardly. Let me spur you in the eyeball and then in the chin. and the, You're just spurring everywhere you know to spur out of a reaction. You have to seriously know the people in your life. It astounds me how little some husbands know their wives. I mean, I mean, honestly, it's like you think you know this person. You know the 20-year-old girl you once started dating, and you stop paying attention at some point. They say that there's a, a mysterious food that kills a woman's libido. It's called wedding cake. But I think that same food kills a man's curiosity. It's like so many men just stop trying to learn their wives. Just stop paying attention. And I'll bet that if I'm really paying attention, I could talk to someone close in your life and then tell you a thing or two about them that you didn't know. It's not about intelligence or relational skills. It's simply about loving someone and paying attention. Consider means really look. You know like how some of you who aren't art aficionados, you go to the art museum and here's how you do it. Yeah, park, okay. Lady, not a great, great looking lady. Scenery, mountains, okay. Seen it. All right, I've seen it. Can we go? That's how my wife would look at an art museum, right? She'd say, yeah, yeah, I've seen mountains before. But a real art lover, they do this, they just go, and they stare at one painting. And sometimes the real freaks, they just start crying. <laughs> it's so beautiful, it moves me. You know what it is? They're not just weird. Because they've stayed at it and gazed into it, they've seen something that the casual observer will never, ever see. Some of them are just weird. Okay, let's just face it. They, they need to get a life. But, but most, they're peering deep into something because sometimes you only see the essence of a thing when you, when you really gaze. It's so easy to write someone's character flaws of us. Oh, I get you. You totally do this. You're over this. You're too much that. And you think you got the person boxed in because you've seen one behavior. Have you really gazed in at that person's life to understand why are they like this? Why are they so clingy? Why are they so needy? Why are they so temperamental? Instead of just indicting them on the behavior, do you have any idea why a sane adult human being would behave this way? Why are they wired in such a way? Because if you don't understand that, you have no right to wear the spurs. And this is why some of you are engaged in such emotional and relational difficulty. You keep trying to spur each other without loving each other, without gazing at, considering deeply the other person. And you're misfiring all the time. And you're frustrated. 
and you wonder why doing the right thing doesn't produce the right result, it's because we have to first consider and then we spur. And that's an important teaching. And that might be the greatest takeaway for some of us this morning is that it has to happen in that order. Because if you don't know the person, you will always misfire on the diagnosis. And you will assume that you got it right when you don't. When you admonish somebody with Christ's love and with Christ's word, you also get Christ's authority to challenge that person. Do you understand that? I want to focus on the one another part. Do you realize that what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this is not a ministry that is restricted to the leaders of the church? You know, there are some people who so reject the counsel of their peers. They're like, well, who are you? You're not one of the pastors. You don't get to talk like that to me. But this pastor says, yes, indeed, they do. If they are motivated by Christ's love and filled with Christ's word, they have Christ's authority to sharpen and challenge you. That is the blessing and privilege we have as brothers and sisters. I am so thankful that my parents raised me and my brother as twins. Because if they had done the whole, uh, what I think is kind of a silly Korean thing about this hyper-emphasis on who is older. I mean, even twins, it's like, I was 30 minutes older, bow to me, you know. I see that in Confucian culture. Sometimes I call it confusion culture because I think it's messed up sometimes. My brother and I are 15 months apart. We were raised like twins. I never got anything more than he did because of my age. As a result, I never threw it in his face. You're not mom and dad. We just figured you're the only brother I got. When he speaks, I just listen. We're able to take each other's words at face value on their merits. And if he says something good to hear, I've got to hear it. How much would my life have been diminished if I had kept throwing back in his face, Hey, don't act like dad. You're not mom. You don't get to say that to me. Well, sure, I think he knows he's not my mother. I'm pretty sure he's that smart. I know he doesn't think he's my dad, but isn't he my brother? And doesn't that come with some sense of responsibility? And as a member of my family, does he not have an inherent authority to call me to live up to that name? Younger or older, it doesn't matter. And I think some of us are, are robbing ourselves of a wonderful means of God's grace because we have silenced and muzzled all the friends around us who don't have a clerical title or an ordination. We say, if you're not a pastor, you can't tell me those things. Don't challenge me about stuff like that. Go mind your own business. We're at the same level on the org chart here. Don't be like that in any setting of your life. Retain the humility and the ability to learn from anybody. Because if you have that, your life will be so much more enhanced by the, by the many voices God's put in your life to speak truth to you. This is a ministry that we do to one another, not just from a position of authority downstream to other people beneath us. Now, can we just explore for a moment what it is that we're spurring each other on to? I love the simplicity of the goal. Spur each other on, and then, if it were me writing, I'd probably have a comprehensive list of 85 things we should spur each other on towards, all subsections and categorized, because I have a sickness. I love the writer of Hebrews, because he just says it like this. He goes, it's really not that complicated. When you spur each other... Aim at two things. What is the most loving thing to do? And what is the most good thing to do? Now, the kind of love he has in mind here is what we call agape love. It's the kind of love that is totally selfless love. 
The kind of love that we don't hope to gain something back. We're not keeping tabs because this is love that's wasted on another person. I'm just burning it up. I don't care if you ever repay me. That's agape love. It's most exemplified by what Jesus did for us on the cross. That kind of agape love is the kind of love we are spurring each other towards. You know, I hear a lot of advice being thrown around. And some of the advice seems to promote self-love. What's best for you? Oh, don't let them do that to you. You should stick up for yourself. You should do whatever is best for you and yours. And sometimes that advice is given in the church in the name of righteousness. But the kind of love and spurring we're always pushing towards is this agape love that says, well, I know you might lose out a little. I know that it might hurt you some. But what would be the most Christ-like way to love someone in this situation? That's the way we spur each other. We don't just say what would be best for you, but what would be most like Jesus Christ? What kind of love would be a purer love here? And then do that thing. And he also says, you know, spur each other towards good deeds. I love Google's unofficial motto. Does anybody know what Google's unofficial motto is? Uh, this guy who invented Gmail just came up with it one day at a meeting and kind of stuck. Anyone know? It's don't be evil. It's an awesome motto for a company. It, it's just kind of comprehensive. And maybe you might disagree. And you're like, no, Google's the evilest company on earth. But the thing is, I love the simplicity and spirit of that. We're not stupid. We know there's good and there's evil. Whatever is evil, just don't be that. Whatever is good, be that. In any situation in life, you know that it's not about whether you gain or lose. It's about what is good and what is not good. Do that good thing. Sometimes I try to give that kind of advice to someone. They say, how come you're not on my side? How come you always go against me? And I want to tell them, it's not about me against you. It's about us for God. This is not about me giving you advice that's best for you, but most reflects that thing called good, which God defines in our world. Whatever is good, do that thing. That is how we spur each other on. I want you to consider deeply the advice you give to people. Because if you run that advice through this filter, you might discover that some of your advice is really off from the biblical mark. It's well-meaning, it's tribal, and it's loyal, but it's not godly advice. Godly advice always spurs people on towards true agape love and real good deeds. I want you to think about the last time somebody practiced agape love in your life. Think about the last time, and, I, I, and this is not rhetorical. I want you to really think about it because you're going to tell somebody in a second here. Think about the last time somebody loved you in a selfless way. Okay? Think about it for about 30 seconds and turn to someone right near you and tell them that story in 30 seconds or less, would you? Okay, think about that. The last time someone loved you with a selfless agape love, and maybe it's the person sitting right next to you, like, hey, remember when you uh, did that? Just tell them. Tell them. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Think about it and then share with somebody for about 30 seconds. And let me get a drink. If you've got no stories to tell, you can come up later after service. I'll pray for you because that's just so sad. Just think, think. So much love to be had in this world. Look at this. 
If I said share with someone the top five things on your list of what you're looking for in a mate, I, I couldn't get you to be quiet, right? <laughs> Listen, as you're sharing about the story of love, think about this. When you experienced or received this agape love, how did it make you feel? Did it make you feel sad or drained? Did it make you feel great? Do you realize that when God tells us to spur each other on towards these things, it's not just to promote this feeling of getting on each other's cases. It's not to raise the irritation level in the church. It's because what we're spurring each other towards makes the world better. It's a beautiful life when it's filled with agape love and good rather than evil, isn't it? Don't you so prefer that when you're trying to get in, someone actually goes, why don't you cut in front of me? Doesn't the world get a little better when somebody does something selfless for you? When they could do evil and they do good instead. Why would we not want to spur each other on towards these things? No matter what it costs us, the net result is that the world becomes filled with a much better fragrance than it is now. It's it's such a simple concept. But we spur each other on because it's worth it to produce that righteousness in each other's lives. If we don't spur each other on, I just let you and you let me be whatever our flesh dictates. Do you know that this world will smell like a gigantic human fart? How many people think farts smell good? Like whenever someone farts, you run to go, oh, save it, hold it, wait till I get there, put it in a baggie, something. Farts smell bad. This world is not a good smelling place. But our commitment to spur each other on against our nature will make it smell a whole lot better. It will fill the world with light. Why will we not do that in each other's lives? Now, if you're going to do that, you've got to get together. And evidently, in this period, there were some people who, for whatever reason, said, you know what, you know this whole church thing, getting dressed up, getting out together, it's getting old real fast. I don't really like it. The speaker's kind of boring. The songs are whatever, not my style. I think I'm just going to try to be a Christian by myself. And, and then they begin asking rhetorical questions like, why do I really need other people to be a Christian again? I don't get it. Can't I just be a Christian between me and God? And they reason that somehow that is an acceptable thing. It's a terrible mistake to make. The Bible never refers to Christianity as a solitary religion. It never speaks of itself as something simply an individualized, atomized experience for one person with their one God. It's always spoken of in the context of community. Do you realize how important it is to just keep showing up? Do you realize the incredible encouragement it gives other people when you make the hard choice to keep showing up? It may not be the most fulfilling thing in the world for you every time you show up, but when you decide to come, it helps reinforce for others the worthiness of coming together. And when you make that simple decision not to come, you'd be surprised what a profound ripple effect that has on the people around you. That is not a personal decision. It's a group decision you're making because you have left an impression on the lives of others by your choice not to come. Now, there's a lot of reasons people don't show up. And I understand those reasons. Many of them are valid. Church isn't always an experience that knocks your socks off. I mean, network television sometimes has better stories to tell than what you get in this place. I get that. But if we don't meet together, something else is lost in the process. We lose touch with each other. And then we begin to lose our voice in one another's lives. 
And when we need to hear from our brothers or sisters because we're losing our way, no one can speak into our lives. You might sit at home in your underwear listening to MP3s of Andy Stanley and and Erwin McManus and all the preachers who outdo me by spades. More power to you. You don't even have to dress up. You're literally sitting in leopard print underwear, just <laughs> picking nose, listening. You're getting blessed all by yourself. But when you lose your way, will Erwin McManus come to your house and say, listen, dude, you got it all wrong. He doesn't know who you are. You could read Christian books. You can give to big ministries in some other city. But without your church, you are orphaned and marooned on an island of one. And when you really need the grace of the community of God's people, it will not be there for you. It is so important that you don't become just a consumer and say, I will keep coming to church because I get a lot out of it. It is just the fact of our connectedness that's an argument in itself for not giving up the meeting together as some people have made a habit of doing. It's funny, you blow off church one day, And then next week it gets a little easier to go, you know, it was kind of nice sleeping in last week. And then we got to stay up a little later on Saturday and went mountain biking in the morning. And actually we got into nature. That was kind of nice. It was sort of like worship. And then next Sunday you go, you know, maybe we should do this more often. Maybe we should take one Sunday off. And eventually you know what happens? A bad decision becomes a habit, becomes a way of life and a way of thinking. Choose your habits. And line them up against the word of God. Don't just let habits calcify in your life. like that. Let me just address this last thing it says. It says, do this more urgently, especially because the day is approaching. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day when Jesus returns. And every person has to give an accounting for their lives. He's talking about the great cosmic final exam of the semester of humanity, right? That's what he's talking about. This is when everything is finished. We all stand naked in front of God and go, okay, go ahead and give it to me. And he asks us about our lives and we answer his questions and we defend our lives and give an account. Thankfully, at the end of all that, Jesus goes, oh, Father, this one belongs to me. Don't throw him into hell. Thank God for that but we will still have to answer for the lives that we've lived. And the reason he's saying this is we have to spur each other on now because there are some assignments that cannot be crammed in the last day. I remember one quarter in seminary, I was taking 10 courses in one quarter. I set a seminary record at Biblical. It, It was quite a feat. And I remember having to make some hard choices. I said, with 10 courses, I can barely keep my assignment straight. I'm going to take the easiest course I'm taking this quarter and just blow off everything until the last week and then write the papers, do the assignments in one day and get it out of the way. And I figured, I'm pretty smart. I could do that. And I put it off. I'd even look at the syllabus. The last week of the quarter, I pull out that syllabus. I roll up my sleeves like, here we go. I'm going to just knock it right out. And, And to my horror, I read... The main grade for this course will come from a daily journal of your reflections on the reading and on your life. And for a fleeting moment, I toyed with the idea of just lying my butt off, making all these journal entries up, creating dates and making stories of encounters I never had. I was going to do it because I was desperate for a grade. I didn't. I took my lumps. I got a bad grade. I learned that a very important lesson that day. There are some assignments you can cram and others you simply cannot. 
Because it can only be done properly day by day. Today's portion of faithfulness and obedience today. I wish I can pray a month's worth in one day and not have to pray for the rest of the month. Don't you wish we could have Hyper Sunday, the first Sunday of every month, I'll give you four sermons and then just stay home for the rest of the month. Don't you wish we could, but you know the thing is, there's something to be said for the regularity of doing today's stuff today that builds us up. In your life right now, there are things probably you're postponing that somebody desperately has to spur you on about because you can't cram those assignments. Some of you are waiting to get serious about discipling your children, really parenting them. You, ha- you wear this perpetual guilt of neglect of your children. And you say, someday I'll get serious. Someday I'll have those daddy-daughter days. Someday I'll take them out. But you know what? Your kids are growing up right under your nose. And if no one spurs you about it, they might completely grow up before you get serious about becoming their mother or their father in any meaningful way. Some of you have a historical love affair with your spouse or or your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you make a lot of assumptions about the health of that love affair. And you just kind of go on becoming a career builder, an empire builder, a homemaker. And you forget to nurture that marriage, and you make a lot of presumptions that it will always be there. And unless somebody spurs you on right now to be a faithful wife, a faithful husband, a faithful lover today, You might lose that love affair and it'll be too late when you get serious about it. That's happened more than once. In fact, it's happened one out of every two relationships in this country. You know, you might one day say, I'll get serious about building this church someday. And I'll tell you, this church might collapse for lack of contributors to the labor and to the giving. This church could collapse while you're getting ready to be serious about being one of us and building together. There are so many things. What about your health? You know, there's some people, we just got to spur you on about your health. You're smoking, you're not exercising, you're overeating, you're doing crazy stuff, and it's killing you. You're living a self-destructive life. Someone must say something now because you'll lose your health while you're deciding if you're going to get serious about it or not. That's not just nagging. Somebody has to spur you because you're not spurring yourself. And the reason that that spurring is righteousness and grace and mercy is because if you don't get spurred, you will just keep going as you are. And at the end of your days, you'll look back and say, I'm ready to get serious now. I'm ready to do it now. And you'll realize you've lost so much. It's too late for so many of those things. And your kids will say, you know what, Dad? Nice try. I totally get what you're trying to do. Be the cool dad. I get it. I appreciate you. But it's a little late for us. I learned more about sex from my friends at school than I did from you. I got all my character and all my personality from the kid next door and not from you. And this Jesus that you worship is your religion. I'm still trying to figure out my own way. So try not to like do the whole dad thing and get it crammed in in the last two years before I go away to school. Nice try, Dad. I get it. But, you know, save the breath. Now that scenario I just described sickens, it puts a pit in your stomach. Then it just, oh, I don't want to find myself there. But I will if someone doesn't spur me on to be a dad now. This day, today. And so it's important because there is a day coming that will put an end to all our tomorrows. 
that will seal forever in cellophane what we did on this earth. And then it will be too late. And because of that, there is a time pressure to all of this. And so we spur each other on. Because you can't stay in limbo, in this sort of lame in-between, I haven't made up my mind stage forever. Someone has to get that spur in you and say, let's keep moving. Because if you don't move, you lose it all. Let's keep moving. Can I encourage you to be open to the ministry of spurring? And if it becomes necessary, let the brothers and sisters in this church dig a spur into your gut every once in a while because you might need it more than you'll ever realize. And receive it with a grateful heart because if no one did that, chances are you look back someday and realize that you lost everything that meant something to you through the daily neglect of doing nothing. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and just let me invite you into a a few words of commitment before God. I can't say I know each of you personally, but you know yourself pretty well. So let me give you a little guidance for your self-reflection here. Could it be that you're that person who is building things that are going to fleetingly pass away, and you've somehow decided to postpone everything that's truly important? Here's how you know you're doing that. You're always apologizing to people close to you. You're always explaining yourself, making excuses, making promises you don't keep. Oh, honey, next weekend. Oh, sweetheart, daddy's busy next time. I promise tomorrow. And you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, thinking one day everything will quiet down and I'll get serious, and I'll finally do it, and maybe it'll be too late. Maybe you're content with a seventh grader's faith in a 35-year-old's life. Maybe you've just stopped trying to grow in your faith, and you say, you know, this is good enough, this is far enough. You don't realize what it's costing you to sit still in your faith. Something is rotting deep down inside. Will you let somebody, will you even let God spur you on this morning to a deeper commitment? Will you let him get you moving? Because if you just sit there and are left to your own devices, you might stay where you are forever. And someday you'll look back and you'll realize how much you lost. Would you in quiet let the Lord search your heart right now? And see if there's something in your life that's stuck that requires some hard spurring to get you moving. As you continue to pray, here's another challenge that you might pray about right now. Maybe there's someone in your life who's making a mess of everything. They have really lost their way. Maybe because they're angry or bitter, they push everyone away and you're afraid to go talk to them and you wonder what good it'll do and you're just sort of discouraged about the whole thing. Can I challenge you 
to be the one God will use to spur that person on to not give up in becoming more like Jesus. If everyone gives up on him, they will stay where they are. They will lose everything. I know it's not easy to be that voice. But if you love them, will you rise to God's call to be the one wearing the spurs? And would you remember, even as I challenge you about that, that before you go spurring people, take some time to really understand them. Don't even open your mouth until you've opened your ears. Really listen, observe, study, and then at the right moment, say what needs to be said with love and force. Would you be that person in somebody's life? I'm sure for some of you, you've got someone right now, just right in your mind, you know this is about you. Let's pray that God will give us the courage to wear the spurs as he commanded. You know, we can't afford to take this subject lightly because if you pray this with honesty, there are some really rough days ahead for you, aren't there? Some very difficult conversations you probably would rather not have. But if you'll be faithful to God, someone else's life could very well be rescued from a very different fate. You could be a difference maker. That always costs something. So we're going to wrestle a little more. And some of you, because of where you are in this situation, you really need to just keep praying. And I'm going to invite you to keep doing that. If you're done praying, I want you to look up and let's just sing a last song together. In fact, you could even rise to your feet. But if you need to keep praying, don't be ashamed. Just keep at it. Keep at it because we need God's help in this. All right? The rest, why don't we stand and let's sing this closing song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.